How's that? There we go. Sorry, people. I don't know what happened there. It was on. It was on, but it was red. So I don't know what happened there. <laughs> I suppose we should pray again, hey? Seeing as everyone at home didn't get that. Let's, let's begin again with, we'll read first of all, seeing as you didn't get that either, and we'll have a word of prayer again, we'll start again. Uh, sorry about that. Genesis chapter 4, let's just read verse 1 and 2 as we begin. It says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And let's just open in prayer, seeing as um, everyone at home missed that, let's just pray. Uh, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here. We thank you, Lord, that we can uh, gather around your word in this way. Uh, we pray that you would uh, bless us this morning through your word, that you would refresh us. We pray that you would give me strength and wisdom as I preach, and that, Lord, you be on and glorified now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, Genesis chapter 3, which we uh, were looking at up until last Sunday, uh, concluded with Adam and Eve being cast out of the Garden of Eden. They're expelled uh, from the garden. Let's just read the end of chapter uh, 3 there. It says in verse 22, And the Lord God said, Because the man, uh, sorry, behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the cherub, uh, garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life and so at the end of chapter three God had cast out Adam and Eve expelled them from the garden and we talked about the fact that this really was uh, an act of God's grace and God's mercy that he would do this you see God did this to ensure that they wouldn't partake of the tree of life in their sinful state you know if they partook of the fruit then they would continue in this sinful fallen state, continue to be separated from God. And so God, to stop them from doing this, to stop them from entering back in, he put these cherubims there to guard the way to the tree of life and indeed the flaming sword as well. And cherubim, as we saw, are always associated with the the throne of God, the presence of God, a meeting place with God. And so, by implication here, the the way to God's presence is now shut. The cherubim are guarding the way. There's a separation between God and man. A separation that would remain in place right throughout the Old Testament and indeed right up until Christ came and died for us on the cross, removing, uh, tearing down that veil of separation that was in the temple. But until then, that, that separation existed which came about because of Adam and Eve's sin. You know, while the way to God's very presence was now shut, man could still come and worship the Lord. God had been gracious enough to make a provision that man could continue to commune with him, you know, even though now at a distance, and they could do it through a, a sacrifice, through the death and shed blood of a sacrifice. And in Genesis 3.21, God put in place that principle. Genesis 3.21, which we looked at last week, it says, Under Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and 
clothe them. God, acting as high priest, had killed these animals, shed their blood in order to provide a covering, atonement, for Adam and Eve. You know, by doing this, God had clearly demonstrated that for atonement to be made, an innocent substitute must die and shed its blood for the guilty party. God established a principle here, a principle for Adam and Eve and their children, their descendants, to follow. He'd shown them in type. He'd shown them the type of sacrifice that was required for fellowship with him. God had shown them how they were to approach unto him. They were to approach in faith with a blood sacrifice. You see, the way that someone approaches God is of utmost importance. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to approach God. There is a way that's acceptable to God, a way that is uh, acceptable and pleasing to Him, and then there is a way that is condemned by God. You see, if we want to have fellowship with God, if we want to enter into a relationship with Him and get to know Him, then we must approach Him through the only acceptable sacrifice, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to approach God through any other means is to reject God's Word and rely instead upon personal merit, rely instead upon our own methods. You see, this is the great division amongst mankind. There are those who accept God's revealed Word and approach him on his terms. And then, of course, there are those who reject God's word and rely instead upon their own methods, their own devices. And you know, this division is perfectly illustrated here in the two sons of Adam and Eve. You see, one accepted God's word. One approached God according to the truth in faith. The other rejected God's word and approached God in his own Ways, his own merits, his own methods. And so this morning we want to focus on these two sons and then secondly focus on their two sacrifices that they brought. So notice firstly, if you would, the two sons. <clears throat> the two sons. Verse 1, which we read before, it says, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. In verse 1, we learn that sometime after, Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden after they're expelled and they have to go forth and and till the ground and live now outside of that wonderful place, the Garden of Eden. Sometime after that, Eve now conceives and bears their first son and they call him Cain. Now the name Cain basically means gotten. And it's derived from Eve's joyful Uh, exclamation or her declaration where she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. This testimony of praise demonstrated her faith. Her faith in the Lord and in in the truthfulness of His promises. Think about it, God had promised Eve that she would have children. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Let's just go back there. In Genesis 3, verse 16, God had said, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desires shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. In verse 16, God had, had declared the promise that she would have children. 
She would do it now through suffering. Okay, there'd be great suffering in childbirth, but God gave her that promise that she would have children. And Eve, she'd now experienced that suffering, hadn't she? She'd experienced the suffering of childbirth, but she could also see the faithfulness of God. See that God had been faithful, that he kept his promise. He'd given her a son. As far as Eve was concerned, God was faithful. You know, of course, there is a, a greater promise than this. In verse 15 of Genesis 3, God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan. Just read verse 15 again. It says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so, of course, there was this greater promise that the, that the seed of the woman would defeat Satan. And it seems that Eve here, she believes Cain is that promised seed. She believes that he's the promised seed. You see, with this name Cain, Eve is basically saying, I've got him. Here he is. Here's the one that God promised. Eve believed God's word, didn't she? She has faith here. She believes God's word. She believes God's promise that it would be her seed that would come and defeat Satan, that would redeem them. And so when Cain is born, she believes he's arrived. Now it's interesting that the phrase translated, I have gotten a man from the Lord, can also be translated, I have gotten a man, even the Lord, or even Jehovah. Some commentators, commentators even suggest that this is actually the most natural reading of the Hebrew. The point is that it may be that Eve even understood that the promised seed was going to be God manifest in the flesh. God may have revealed that unto Adam and Eve, and there's every reason to believe that. They have more knowledge than we give them credit for. And so she may have not only believed he was the promised seed, but believed that he was God manifest in the flesh. You know, one thing seems certain, and that is that Eve believed Cain to be the promise. The promised seed. One commentator wrote this, he said, In Cain's birth, she recognized the earnest and guarantee of the promised seed. And in token of her faith, gave her child a name. And so the name Cain really is a declaration of faith. That's the most important thing we understand here. It's a declaration of faith. In verse 2, we're now introduced to her second son, of course, named Abel. Let's read verse 2. It says, And she again bare his brother Abel, <clears throat> and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller, of the ground. Now we are introduced to the second son, Abel. Now Abel is born sometime after Cain. We're not told how long is between the two. You know, some have thought they may have actually been twins. And they make this assumption because there's no separate record of Abel's conception. Okay, verse 2 doesn't start out by saying, and she conceived again and bare Abel. Okay, there's no separate record of Abel's conception. And so they make this assumption that Cain and Abel may actually have been twins. But as I said, this seems to just be that, an assumption. An assumption that can't be proved from the Word of God. And, and surely if they were twins, God would have told us. I mean, there's plenty of other 
place in the Word of God where there are twins mentioned, and it tells us that they're twins. And so it seems to be just an assumption. And so all we know is that Abel is born sometime after Cain. And the name Abel means vapor or vanity. It's the exact same word that's translated vanity over 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's, the, that's his name. His name is Vanity. And the name suggests to us that Adam and Eve have become thoroughly uh, impressed and, and aware of the impact of God's curse upon creation. They're thoroughly aware of the impact that it has had upon the created world. You know, God had indeed made creation subject to vanity. Now, in the New Testament, Paul wrote of that. He said in Romans 8, verse 20, it says, For the creature was made subject to vanity. And creation was now subject to vanity. And so perhaps this name is in reference to this truth, to the reality that life is but a vapor, everything is vanity. Now, one commentator wrote this. He said, the probability is that our first parents were getting into the painful experiences of life and embodied their verdict of it in the name of their child. Thus, the name of their second son gathers up the history of their past and the sorrows of their present condition. It would ever be a monitor to both child and parents. When either is tempted to be led away by earthly things, it would serve to remind them of their vanity. And so it seems that that's the case here. His name is in reference to how they now view life, the consequences of their sin. And so we have one son who's named in acknowledgement of God's promise, one son named in reference uh, to her faith in the promise that God would send the seed to defeat Satan, and the other son is named acknowledging the state the world is now in because of sin. Everything is vanity. Now as the boys grow up, they both take on different professions. Verse 2 tells us in the second half there, it says, And Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. They take on different professions. Cain, it says, is a, is a farmer, a tiller of the ground. Abel is a shepherd. And both of these are noble professions, noble occupations, useful occupations. You know, we've said it before, but man was created to work. That's what we were created to do. We were created to work. And here we have both Cain and Abel fulfilling this duty. You know, they've been raised by Adam and Eve to understand this need, and they're both working, laboring. They're both faithful doing this, fulfilling this duty. You know, Cain, by tilling the ground, by being a farmer, he's providing food for the family, isn't he? And not just for you know, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, but for the others as well as the, the population grows. He's a farmer, he's providing food. It's an important role, an important uh, job in this, this time. And Abel, as a shepherd, Abel would have been providing clothing for the family and also animals for sacrifice. And so here's have a twofold purpose, sacrifice and clothing. You see, man was not authorized, not given the mandate by God to eat meat until after the flood. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, let's just go back there. 
It says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree, in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And so God had originally created man to eat the fruit of the ground, to eat the fruit, to eat the, the fruit of the trees. That's what God had created man to do. That was the original mandate. And then in chapter 9, and verse 3, when Noah comes off the ark, it says this, chapter 9, verse 3, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. And so after they come off the ark, there's this new mandate given by God, a mandate that they can now eat meat. And so that, what that tells us is that here in Genesis chapter 4, these sheep are not kept for food. Abel is not a shepherd raising sheep for food. It would seem that they're kept for, as I mentioned, clothing and sacrifice. As we said in the introduction, you know, God had put in place a principle, hadn't he? A principle that atonement required an innocent substitute to die shedding its blood. Genesis 3, 21. And we can be sure that Adam and Eve, they've brought their children up to, to know this truth to understand this truth, and therefore the keeping of sheep for sacrifice unto God is an important profession. It's an important part, just like Cain's food is important. What, sh- what Abel is doing is important too. The commentator Morris writes this, he says, As the population grew, Abel's sheep would no doubt have been available by trade or purchase to anyone who wished to use one for sacrifice or for clothing. It would have had an important role. The sheep for sacrifice and clothing. And so we've been introduced to these two sons, and we've seen their two very different professions. And now secondly, this morning we come to the two offerings. The two offerings. Look at me in verse 3, <clears throat> chapter 4. It says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the first things of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. You know, as we read on now in the passage, we learn that in the process of time, they both bring a sacrifice, they both bring an offering unto the Lord. And there seems to have been a regular time and a regular place where they would go to worship God, to sacrifice to the Lord and to have fellowship with the Lord, to meet with Him. You see, the words, in process of time, it came to pass. Okay, at the start of verse 3 there, and in process of time, it came to pass. Those words literally mean at the end of days. At the end of days, which suggests to us a regular practice, that at the end of certain days, they would come to sacrifice. It's a regular practice. They would worship at an appointed time. Now, as to what this time was, some have suggested that it was possibly the Sabbath, that every Sabbath they would come to sacrifice unto the Lord, and and God had established the Sabbath. At the end of creation, Genesis chapter 2, Uh, Verse 3, Genesis 2, verse 3, it says, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and 
made. And so God had blessed the seventh day, he'd sanctified it, and so there's every possibility they were coming every Sabbath to sacrifice to the Lord. Others have suggested that perhaps it was a yearly sacrifice, that they came up at the harvest time to sacrifice to the Lord. But either way, we're told that it's at the end of days. It's at an appointed time. So it's a regular occurrence they come to worship the Lord. Now as to where they brought these sacrifices, the best explanation seems to be the entrance to the Garden of Eden. This is where the cherubim are standing, guarding the way to the tree of life. This is where the flaming sword is. As we've said, cherubims are associated with the throne of God throughout the word of God. They're they're associated with a meeting place. And so it would make sense that this is where they would come to meet with God and to make these offerings, these sacrifices unto the Lord. Now one commentator read said it's almost like their holy of holies. Now you have the, the temple and you have the tabernacle in the Old Testament. They would come in to give sacrifices. There was the holy of holies, the, the special meeting place with God. It's almost like this was their holy of holies, their special meeting place. And so it would seem that it's at an appointed time and it's at the entrance here. It's where the cherubim are. Now as to what these sacrifices would entail, we know that God has given them a principle. I keep coming back to this, Genesis 3, 21. The principle of atonement by the shedding of blood. You see, it would seem logical that God has expounded upon this. He's revealed to Adam and Eve the necessity to bring such a substitutionary sacrifice when they approach him. Now this was a revelation that they would no doubt have shared with their children. And they brought them up with this knowledge. They brought them up to come and sacrifice to the Lord. Brought them up knowing what God expected when they came. See, it's important to note here that when Cain and Abel bring their sacrifices here in chapter 4, they're fully grown men. They're not children. They're fully grown men with their own professions now and they're coming to worship the Lord. What this suggests to us is this is not the first time that they've brought sacrifice. This is not the first occasion that they've come with sacrifice unto the Lord. Commentator Morris writes this. He says, Adam and Eve had no doubt duly instructed their children in this provision and for a long time they heeded and followed it. Cain himself had probably purchased from Abel a sheep for his own sacrifice each time they came to the appointed place. Indeed, it makes sense. It makes sense that this is not the first time that they brought sacrifice. But it is the first time that Cain is rejected. Cain is rejected. His sacrifice is rejected. In verse 5 it says, But unto Cain and to his offering." He had not respect. God rejects Cain. God rejects his offering. Why? It seems that Cain has decided to reject God's word. Cain has decided to reject God's revealed method of sacrifice. And he chooses now to bring what he deems to be acceptable. He brings the fruit of the ground. You see, it would seem that Cain has become resentful. You know, of the fact that he has to purchase from his brother a sacrifice each time. This helps explain why he's so angry at Abel too, by the way. He's resentful of his brother. 
Now, why isn't his produce sufficient? Why can't he just bring the fruit of his own labor? Why does he need to bring a sheep? Why does he have to get one from his brother? Now, that seems to be his attitude here. Cain resents the situation, and finally he rebels against it. Morris, again, he writes this, There seemed no good reason to him why he should be indebted to his young brother each time. His own fruits were every bit as valuable and at least as attractive and useful to man as were Abel's sheep. That's the point here. He's looking at him and he's thinking, why can't I just bring what I have? Why do I need this? Why don't I just bring what I've got? And so Cain, in presumption and rebellion, he decides he's going to go his own way. He's going to do things his way. And on this occasion, he brings, as we read there in verse 3, the fruit of the ground, an offering unto the Lord. He brings the fruit of the ground, and only the fruit of the ground. That's what he's bringing here. He brings the fruit of his efforts, and he offers these to God. You know, this shows to us the hard attitude of Cain. You see, there seems to be no concern here for the will of God. There's, there's pride in his, in his heart here, pride in what he has achieved, and And he wants to give that to God. And he considers that it should be good enough. And there also seems to be a spirit of rebellion, doesn't there? Rebellion against the the way God has asked them to come to him. You know, all of this means that as he comes to offer his sacrifice to God, his heart is not right before the Lord. His offering is not brought in faith, and so God rejects his gift. It says that in verse 5. But under Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And you know, Cain was immediately aware that God had rejected him. Cain was immediately aware that God had rejected his gift. That's why he's angry. That's why he's upset. You know, what this suggests to us is that there was probably a visible sign from God. A visible sign from God that he had rejected the offering. And many believe that it was a sign of fire from heaven. But, you know, as they brought their sacrifice, God would send fire from heaven to show that it was accepted. But this time, there's no fire. No fire comes as Cain brings the fruit of the ground. God rejected Cain and his sacrifice. But, you know, on the other hand, Abel. Abel brings a sacrifice that's in accordance with the principles that God revealed in Genesis chapter 3. The principles that God had taught Adam and Eve. Abel brings the right sacrifice. It says in verse 4, And Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock, and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Abel here brings a lamb from his flock, and not just any lamb, it says the first things of his flock, and the fat thereof. In other words, this is the very best that he has to offer. The commentator Gill, he said this, the fattest of his flock, the best lambs he had, the fattest and plumpest, and of which were the most free from defects and blemishes, not the torn, nor lame, nor sick, but that which was perfect and without spot. Abel understood the truth here, didn't he? He brings the very best and offers it to God. He brings a blood sacrifice as God has commanded to approach unto the Lord. You see, the attitude of heart here between the two is very distinct, isn't it? And the attitude of heart is demonstrated clearly by the sacrifice they bring. 
In the New Testament, it's recorded that Abel brought a more excellent sacrifice and he did it by faith. Let's just turn over to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verse 4. It says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. God respected Abel's sacrifice because of Abel's faith and his more excellent sacrifice. Abel acted in faith, bringing this blood sacrifice in accordance with God's command. So God had respect unto Abel and his sacrifice. You know, God accepted Abel. God accepted his offering, but he rejected Cain, and he rejected his offering. Abel came in faith and worshipped God in the way appointed and was accepted. Cain came with a heart of rebellion to worship God and was rejected. You see, as we said in the introduction, these two brothers show perfectly the division that exists in mankind today. There are those who, like Cain, have the spirit of rebellion and they want to come to God on their own terms. They want to come to God in their own methods, their own way. You know, the attitude that all roads lead to heaven. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe, we'll all get there in the end. It doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what we do, we're all going to get there. That is the attitude that Cain demonstrated here in Genesis chapter 4 and it's the attitude of many people in the world today. People are under the impression that they can approach God on their own terms and that God will accept them. You know, the Bible makes it very clear that there is only one way to approach unto Him. And that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14 and verse 6 says, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no other way to approach God. There's no other way to be restored to fellowship with Him. There is no other way to have eternal life than through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb slain for all mankind. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, Christ is the perfect sinless substitute, the perfect sinless sacrifice for the sins of all mankind, so that we might through Him enter into fellowship with God and have eternal life. You see, like Abel, we must approach God in faith. Faith in the finished work of Christ. There is no other way. And so I wonder today, have you come to God in faith? Or are you trying to approach him on your own terms, as Cain did? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would work in the hearts of each and every one who's listening. But we pray if there's anybody here today who's not saved, that Lord, they would realize that, Lord, there is no other way to come to you than to come through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only way of salvation, the only way for fellowship to be restored, the only acceptable sacrifice. Lord, I pray for those of us who are saved. Help us, Lord, to 
come and worship you in the acceptable way. Help us to come with our hearts in faith as we, we come to worship you around your word. And help us just to, to do it in a way that honors you, a way that glorifies you, according to the revelation given to us in your word. May you bless now as we close and bless the rest of our afternoon and bring us back uh, together again this evening around your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.